foreheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for giving us this unity that binds us together, all based on love, of course. Father, thank you for the fellowship that you've ordained for this congregation, one to each other, but also, of course, with you through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those that are not with us this morning, that earnestly desire to be here, but for a variety of issues, including health, cannot be. We just pray that you return them safely to our fold. Your will be done, of course, in your good timing. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, that are hopeless without you, without your salvation, that they be humbled before it's too late and receive saving faith. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence, part 49. You're going to have to give, uh, give my voice a little break here this morning. On Wednesday, our beloved evangelist uh, stood behind this pulpit, uh, and unsurprisingly, he began with a high note, or with the high note on the gospel proper. Go to uh, John 4, verse 10. John 4, 10. <clears throat> So this is a point of review from last Sunday. We're going to take the uh, snapshot version of it this morning to get us situated. John 4, verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And of course, this is the scene at the well in Samaria with the woman. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What about verse 14? Go there. Verse 14. He says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And we're going to spend a lot of time this morning on the idea of having a thirst quenched, uh, what that means. I'm just warning you, there's a lot of moving parts this morning, so hopefully you have your thinking caps on and you've got a good night's rest and you're concentrating. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so here's how we start this morning. The idea of the wellspring of life eternal, and I purposely turn those words around to remind you that God is the essence of life itself, and he happens to be eternal. That's why we call it eternal life. But I also like to think, and I want you to think this way, that it's life itself, life itself that we're given, okay? And it happens to be eternal because he is life, John 4.10 and 14. 
Salvation is as simple and pure as drinking a glass of water. These are from, this is from Wednesday. As simple and pure as drinking a glass of water where the peace we seek with our Creator can be quenched. And I was thinking about uh, back in my days, back in the late 80s when I was in boot camp, uh, the rule was when you came in to eat, I mean, that was your highlight of the day. You got tortured, and then they gave you three meals. And so the mealtime was like the highlight. You looked forward to it. But before you could eat anything, they said, you have to drink three glasses of warm water before you eat anything. Uh, this was in the middle of Texas. That's why in the summer. And they didn't want you to dehydrate. So as hungry as we were, this command, and it was a command, because if you got caught eating before you drank, you got in big trouble. This command was a bit disconcerting, uh, disconcerting, inconvenient, as you can imagine. We're looking at our food salivating, and we have to gulp three glasses of water before we can even begin. At the end of the day, though, our superiors knew better than we did. Our superiors knew better than we did. And this is the essence of the commands of our superiors. They are meant for good. This is why God demands that people believe the gospel truth. The gospel is a command. We're commanded as human beings to believe. It's a command. And God demands that people believe the gospel truth. doesn't mean they all obey, as we know, but it still is nonetheless a demand slash a command. Again, why does he demand such things? Because God knows best. Because God knows best. In essence, this is why Jesus said the following things. And we've seen this several times now over the past couple of weeks. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And of course, John 14, 15, the reverse, if you would. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there's that sort of intrinsic binding, if you would. Again, I repeat, God knows best. God knows best. Remember, when Jesus said the things on the board, he said them as the messenger of his Father, who again knows what's best for his children. Jesus stated clearly in the Bible that he was doing his Father's bidding on earth. He was sent, think of this, he was sent by his Father as the Savior, to be the Savior. He wasn't even sent to judge yet. That's a future thing. He was sent to save. So let's remember this when Jesus spoke the, uh, the points on the board in John 15.10 and John 14.15. When he speaks about the commands, he received these commands from his Father. Jesus reminds him of this fact, or reminds us of this fact himself. Up here on the board, John 17, 8 reads, For I have given them the words that you gave me. Remember, he's praying to his Father. I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Again, the point out of the gate here this morning is that God demands that people believe the gospel truth. 
that they drink from that well. God demands that people believe the gospel truth. Again, because he knows best. We might rightly conclude, based on Jesus' own words in the Bible, then that Jesus was the greatest evangelist to ever walk this earth. He gave the command to believe. He manifested in himself even, being the Savior. So Jesus Christ lived that command, was a manifestation of that command. Believe in me, he said. Follow me. So we can rightly conclude, based on Jesus' own words in the Bible, that he was the greatest evangelist to ever walk this earth. And as sort of a side note on evangelism that came out last Sunday and Wednesday, evangelism often involves personal, and think about this with upcoming holiday season, evangelism often involves personal one-to-one intimacy. And I have my notes here, scratching record for some of you. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't like that one-on-one intimacy stuff when it comes to the gospel. As Scott mentioned on Wednesday, a lot of times people don't want to be approached with the gospel because it puts them in an uncomfortable social context. And this might be one of the reasons why the Spirit's highlighting the intimacy. doesn't mean that every form of evangelism happens one-on-one. But it certainly does exist, and there are a multitude of examples in the Bible where an evangelist, including Jesus, like at the well, speaks and becomes intimate with the audience, with that one-person audience. And so there's a reason why the Spirit's bringing this up. Think Think of the pride of life. Think of the average person nowadays, how proud they are. how, especially in America, it's actually encouraged to, to exhibit a type of arrogance. We call that the pride of life. So think of the pride of life here, and then think of the humility of salvation. So you have the pride of life against the humility of salvation. If you approach an unbeliever in public with the gospel... In order for them to receive it honestly, they must concede their wretchedness. Also, how? In public. In other words, if I did that thing, some people call it an altar call. All right, everybody who believes, come on up. Well, what is the concession? You're in public conceding your own wretchedness, assuming that the proper gospel has been preached, of course. So do you see the tension? Pride of life, humility of salvation. There's a tension there. And when you make it a public scene, some people won't hold up. Some people won't be able to sustain the pressure, the social context, if you would. So as an example, if you preach the gospel to a thousand people and 500 of them come forward to an an altar call, let's call it. Uh, We don't do that here, but some people do. To an altar call or raise their hands in celebration, what about the other 500 people? 
So there's 1,000 people in the audience. 500 of them claim they, they believe. What about the other 500, though, the unbelievers, the ones that remain? They might fall into the camp that's too proud to publicly proclaim their own wretchedness. In other words, the social dynamic itself is a stumbling block. So that's food for thought the next time you consider evangelism. Again, this is just a little side note on evangelism because that's what we're talking about when you talk about drinking from the well that leads to eternal life. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about evangelism. Jesus Christ was evangelizing the woman of Samaria at the well. So here's a question. What's better as you think about that? What's better, a failed attempt to evangelize a thousand people or a successful attempt with one person? Which is better? I gave the gospel to a thousand people. Or I talked to an old friend of mine, one-on-one over a cup of tea, and they were saved. Which one is better? I also think social dynamics, as I was just wrapping up my own thoughts on this little sidebar, I think social dynamics is why Jesus, in part, not wholly, but in part, is why Jesus sent out his early evangelists in twos. So take some time to think about that. Just take some time to think about that. I want to look at a situation that is recorded in the Bible regarding a person of prominence that wanted to avoid social shame or social back pressure, as I just described. And think about how Jesus responded to this person who was earnest in their seeking the truth. It's not that they didn't want to know. It's just that they were weak. Notice that Jesus doesn't shuffle this man away, saying, come back to my 1,000-person crusade tomorrow. I'll give you the gospel then. Does he do that? No. Jesus seizes the opportunity. And that might be you. Do you understand? Someone says, hey, I believe, I heard you're a Christian. They might, that might be your opportunity to seize the moment instead of saying, yeah, why don't you just come to my church? Let's finish watching the football game. Here's the address. I'm going to let somebody else do the work. That might be your moment in time to seize the moment, to have that intimacy. Go to John 3, verse 1. John 3, verse 1. John 3, 1 reads, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Remember the posture of the Jews was very kind of highfalutin, as we would say nowadays. And it was all... It was all dependent on their own self-righteous view, their own self-righteous posture. And so if you're esteemed based on something uh, that now would be suspect, what does that say about your position? In other words, if you're propped up on something, the last thing you want to have happen is that something, that pillar that you're standing on, to be cut away. So just 
picture that. Here's Nicodemus raised up high because he's a Pharisee. In that, in the context there, there's a whole social dynamic. These guys were the rulers. These were the so-called, you know, the intellects of the law. And so what did he do? Look at verse 2. This man came to Jesus, how? By night. In the cloak of darkness. Do you follow? He came to Jesus by night. Why? Social dynamics. Social dynamics. That could be you this Thanksgiving. Maybe someone catches you, you're over in the recliner, and someone sits next to you in the armchair next to you and just wants to talk while everybody else is in the other room. That's their nighttime for, you, for them. They want to catch you on the side. So this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, but no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then the conversation continues. What might we learn, though, from this scene? Well, minimally, that one-on-one -on -one evangelism works because eventually Nicodemus is saved. That one, so what that he came at night? So, does it really matter? How were you saved? What kind of, what, honestly, what did the conversation look like when you were saved? I don't know. We ought to be very encouraged by Jesus' behavior as an evangelist. After all, our series is titled, The Lord is Our Confidence. He's our prototype, right? Are there times where Jesus used the same tactic with someone, let's say, and it didn't work? No. You don't always hit a home run when you're one-on-one. -on -one. In, this, in this area of the country, chances are you're probably going to strike out. But that is not your business. You are not the one who closes the deal, let's say. It's your job to present the information. That's it. That's not even that hard. So are there times when Jesus' you know, evangelistic efforts so-called failed, let's say, and I use that in human terms. Yeah. So we should never lose our confidence in evangelism. Failure is never an excuse to quit. Failure is never an excuse to quit. You are going to fail much more. I, I think this is just a life lesson at this point. You are going to fail much more than you will ever succeed. And most of your successes will become from what you learned through failure. Who's successful the first time at anything? No one. No one. You want to hear a funny story? Okay, I'm going to tell you anyways. I have a shop at the house, right? I don't know what I'm doing sometimes. I always wanted to learn how to weld. So what did I do? I took some Christmas gift money, and I bought a welder. Didn't know how to weld. Watched a YouTube video. I'm like, I can do this. Flip the mask down, you know the mask, right? So you don't, it's like looking at the sun. You, you, they, you know, you look at that thing, you burn your retinas out, right? Flip this thing down. I'm like, how do they do this? I can't see anything. It looks like I'm looking at the sun. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just like, the welds all messed up. There's a dial on the side that says on. So I stared at a weld arc with basically sunglasses. 
And I, I flip it up and I couldn't see it. was right in the middle. It was two black dots. I said, oh my God, I just burned out my own retinas. It's okay to laugh. I can see. I talked to my optometrist. I'm like, I stared at a welding arc for 10 seconds straight. She's like, you're all right. I said, whoa. Thank goodness. I failed horribly. How's that muffler doing, though? Still on, right? A couple weeks later, I welded a muffler on for my mother. Ugly as sin. <laughs> that was over a year ago, was it not? It's still working. Chris, remember we went onto your truck? Remember that? That was kind of fun, huh? He's like, not really. We welded his, too. Thing was ugly, was it not? You look at it, it looks like he's got like tumors hanging off of it. It's just ugly. <laughs> right? It's still holding. See? Right? It's ugly, but it works. Just saying. Failure is never an excuse to quit. So thinking about evangelism, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Fair enough. You can give them the gospel truth, but you just can't make them drink. Even Jesus so-called failed at this task. Give them the truth, they didn't want it. So this came up on Wednesday's message also regarding the one who refuses God's divine command to drink and to believe the gospel. If you don't drink, you die. If you don't drink, you die. That's what happens, or that's what happens to an unbeliever. They refuse to drink the life-giving water that Jesus offered to the Samaritan woman at the well. That's the scene. In Matthew 7:23, Jesus describes this situation, even though some people were able to describe the well. You know, Matthew 7:20, I never knew you. The Pharisees had perfect, had the law, right? Committed to memory. So they walked up to the well. They could describe the whole well in detail as well as anybody else. But they never drank from it. They never actually experienced the thirst-quenching water that leads to life eternal. And I was laughing because true to his Italian roots, Scott mentioned that dining is also another place of intimacy. Right? Good old Italian guy. Everything's about food, isn't it, Grandis? No? Not funny? It's like, don't you make fun of my son. I'm little, but I'm feisty. <laughs> She's like this. She's like... <laughs> Being invited to dine with the king. This was from Wednesday's message. The invitation into the sphere of God implies an intimate relationship. If the king calls you to his table, that's a special opportunity to be in his home and eat of his blessings. So is the offer of salvation. Turn away from your own food and drink and receive his supply if you want peace with your king. That's Matthew 22, 1 to 14. We read that together on Wednesday. Let's give this a little context now, and this is where you're going to have to start concentrating. I'm going to start adding some more doctrine to the table. Back then, to refuse a wish of a king was considered untenable. It just didn't happen. If a king said this, you did it. 
It was untenable. If he said, hey, even something nice, hey, you know, come to my table and eat with me. If you said, oh, thanks, but no thanks. Even if you were polite, that's a bad move. He says, come on, you go. And that's much more profound. It was much more profound then than it is now. As we saw on Wednesday, this scene in Matthew 22, which was the parable of the wedding feast, finishes with a very interesting point. Hypocrisy. And as we've learned over the past few months, Jesus despised one thing very much. Hypocrisy. In this case, he closes out his parable of the wedding feast, an invitation to be intimate with him personally. And then a phony shows up, just like the Pharisees. He closes out his parable of the wedding feast with the hypocrite who shows up with his own garment, his own brand of righteousness. That's what's in view. We might call this person a wedding crasher. So we have an actual wedding crasher in the Bible, in the parable told by Jesus Christ. So we might call this person a, we a person a wedding crasher, which is really what a lot of professing Christians are today. They're wedding crashers, intent on enjoying the feast, but all the while dishonoring the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who invited them. Well, as we see in the parable, the king, which is really Jesus, won't stand for it. Go to Matthew 22, verse 11. We'll see the very end of this. Matthew 22, verse 11. Matthew 22:11 But when the king came in to look at the guests he saw there a man who had no wedding garment and he said to him friend how did you get in here without a wedding garment and he was speechless then the king said to the attendants bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth Hmm. that scene, it, it, it takes us back to the scene with the Samaritan woman at the well where Jesus spoke of life eternal, springing up from the water he alone is able to give. In other words, if you don't want to wear my garments, if you don't allow me to dress you, if you don't want to drink of the truth, the gospel truth, then I'm throwing you out. You're a poser. You showed up to my wedding you didn't take my righteousness. You chose to show up with your own righteousness. Who does that sound like? Sounds like just like the people in Matthew 7, 23, where he said, I never knew you. You shut up with your own righteousness. You never, you, you never drank from my well. You set up your own well. You probably you, you looked at mine like, a, like the Chinese do with technology nowadays. They reverse engineer everything, and then they make their own. But it's never the authentic thing. You looked at my well, you made a mental copy of it, you brought it over here, you made another well that had no real eternal life in it, and you sold that as the truth, and you propped yourselves up on that. 
That's what we're seeing over and over. The imagery just changes, folks. But that's what we're seeing. Go to Revelation 21.5. We saw another instance of all of this here, specifically on the topic of uh, having a thirst quenched. Revelation 21, verse 5. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of the water of life without payment. Here's the connective tissue up here on the board. We saw this on Wednesday. Revelation 21.6 reads, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And we also saw in John 4.14 earlier, The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Same person, same voice, same message. Revelation 21.7 the one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. For as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, and those are examples of wedding crashes and some, some examples of wedding crashes from Matthew 22, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Same end point as what Jesus described in the parable of the wedding feast. If you're a wedding crasher, if you pose to be one of Christ's own, but you habitually live in that list he just laid out there, without any repentance, any remorse whatsoever, then you're, you're counted with the lost. You've never drank from the well of eternal life that leads to eternal life and that's his message we shouldn't be shocked by that as the spirit pointed out earlier a person who refuses to drink from the wellspring that leads to eternal life will suffer the second death namely to be sentenced to the lake of fire for all of eternity and that reminds me of the rich man in Hades remember this scene in Luke 16, 24 up here. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. This is the rich man. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water. Cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. The, the thirst imagery continues even in hell. Because their thirst, what did Jesus say at the, at, at the well? He said, if you drink this water, you'll never thirst. What's the scene in hell? I just, just give, me a, give me something to quench my thirst. And that's the imagery. Never happens. That's why we don't want our worst enemy there. I can't even, I'm thinking about that right now. I, it, my, my heart is broken. It's not a hundred years, folks. We like to think in human terms. It's not a hundred year sentence. It's not a life sentence. It's an eternal life sentence. It goes on and on and on. Think about that. When you're in your armchair and someone sits next to you 
this Thanksgiving and wants to have a private by night conversation. Think about that. Think about where they're heading. It's not 50 years of torment, folks. It's forever. If that's not motivation, I don't know what is. Honest to goodness, I don't know what is. There's nothing worse than that. Those in the lake of fire have an unquenchable thirst for all of eternity. Hence Jesus' good counsel to the woman in Samaria. Again, verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Up here on the board, on that topic of the second death, Revelation 21.8, every human being is given the option to drink from, I should say from, not form, from the wellspring that leads to eternal life. In other words, have their thirst quenched. Every, every human is given that opportunity. If they refuse, they will die in their sins. In other words, they will die thirsty, which is called the second death. Which is called the second death. We just saw that. Speaking of dying in their sins, another little quick sidebar. Dying in sins being tantamount to eternity with unquenchable thirst. Go to John 8.23. John 8.23. Speaking of dying in sins. This is what happens if you do not drink from the well that leads to life. You die in your sins. You die thirsty. And you remain thirsty for all of eternity. It's unquenchable. John 8, 23. He said to them, and the Pharisees here in view, or his audience, he said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, I want you to pay very close attention. I'm going to make one quick point. I've got to move on because I think some of you are still stuck. That is plural. Does it say sin or sins? It's okay. You can say it. It's sins, plural. Okay? An unbeliever dies in their sins. Okay. So here's a challenge. Some of you might believe that there's only one sin that an unbeliever supposedly dies in. That's a false doctrine that's taught to support a system of thinking that is also false. Do yourselves a favor and spend some time in the Bible on this one verse and see if your concept of dying in sins is harmonious with the word tetelestai. Either it's complete, it is finished, or it is not. Either he died for every sin or he's a liar. This will not be a two-minute exercise, unless you already know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. Some of you don't. Some of you are stuck. And I want to set you free from it. Because if you believe there's a, this one outstanding sin, this supposed one sin that people die in, You've been mistaught. 
and you need to be delivered. Again, that's enough on that. Verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. That echoes back to the beginning of class where Jesus said, My Father, I, I gave them your words. I think it was John 17, 8. He was praying to the Father. And he said, Father, I gave them what you gave me to tell. I gave them your word. I communicated to them the demand, the command to believe in me. I've delivered what you wanted me to. And that's just him there in verse 26 echoing the same thing. What Jesus was saying, though in a different context from the gentler presentation at the well in Samaria, same gospel, right? It's only one gospel. Same gospel, but the context changed. The context changed. He was dealing with arrogant Pharisees at this point. At the well, he was dealing with a single Samaritan woman. These two things come together, though. To drink of him, we have to have faith. We have to have what the Bible calls saving faith. That's what we receive when we drink the truth. Up here on the board. We can do nothing without faith, my friends. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Matthew 9, 23. Again, faith, I described this, I think it was last Sunday. Faith is the vehicle. Remember the train analogy? Faith is the thing that takes you there. It's impossible for you to get there without faith. You have to drink in. What are you doing right now? You're taking in the, the word of God. You're drinking in Jesus Christ. He is the Word. You're drinking Him in. And faith comes from what? Hearing the Word of Christ. That's Romans 10, 17. This is how this works. It started at your salvation with the gospel proper. I command you to believe. And you took Him in. You drank Him in and you, gave, you were given something. What? Saving faith. By grace, through faith, you were saved. Faith becomes that vehicle, right? Some people sip it. That's Hebrews 6. Some people, some people sip of the truth and they spit it out. We call them uh, uh, apostates. They taste it even. And they say, nope. We, in, we, we drink him in, right? That's why you're here this morning, is it not? To drink him in, to be refreshed with truth. Now, speaking of being able to do nothing without faith, again, without faith, we aren't even saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 appear on the board. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a, not a result of works so that no one may boast. 
by grace through faith. Without faith, we are hopeless and helpless to do anything good in this life. Without faith, we are hopeless and helpless to do anything good in this life. So we consider Jesus' words on this topic of faith. And as we do so, let's think about if our faith is real or not. After all, a tree bears fruit after its kind, right? And we all call ourselves Christians, right? With the primitive idea being that Christ is our prototype. Let's see what our prototype has to say about applied faith. Applied. So some of you come to church regularly. Maybe you just sip, though. Maybe you're not really drinking in. Maybe you go out in the parking lot and stick your finger down your throat. I'm serious. And you throw up what you heard. As soon as you get in the car and you saw that, you see that text from that ungodly human being that you call a friend, you go, hold on a second. Can't deal with that. Too convicting. Here we go. Okay. I don't know. Does that happen? Probably. So we're not off the hook. We can't just say, oh, look at those people in Hebrews 6. Look at them. They tasted the truth and they spit it out. What about you? You're hearing the truth right now. Are you drinking them in? That's between you and the Lord. There's such a thing called applied faith. And it's okay to look at your own life, to look at your own fruit, to see how you measure up, right? To see how your faith holds up under real pressure. So let's talk about real pressure. Go to Matthew 5.38. Matthew 5, verse 38. So I don't, you know, the Spirit never goes to, never lets us wax poetic for too long, does he? doesn't like just say, oh, isn't that wonderful? Isn't that the best doctrine ever? Yay! No, let's get real now. All right. Here's one way in which he calls us to the table. And don't feel singled out because this, is, this, this scripture is ancient. And these words really happened. That's why they're recorded. So it's not a novel concept what you're thinking right now or struggling with or how you might fail the test, how you might pass the test. Don't know. But there's a thing called applied faith that we can use as or in our own self-examination. Matthew 5:38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Think about one-to-one evangelism, let's say, even. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would, who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Ooh, that one's tough, isn't it? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, matured, in other words, as your heavenly Father is perfect, complete, if you would. What might we conclude, given verbal plenary scripture? In other words, the whole big picture of the Bible. What might we conclude on this ultimate notion of perfection? What does it mean to be perfect? I'll give you a hint. 1 John 4.16 says God is love. And in Matthew 5.48, we just read, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, our heavenly Father is love. Is literally called love. So what might you conclude between those two statements alone? Be perfect like our Father is perfect. Oh, and by the way, our Father is love. And think about the test. Think about the litmus test that the Spirit just put on the table. This came out on Wednesday up here on the board. Obeying the command to love. John 13, 35. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 John 4, 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we... Love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hmm, same word. You see how this dovetails, dovetails all together, even brings in the idea of obedience, of faith. Again, verse 48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who, by the way, is described as love. So, to back up a bit bringing into focus the commands that begin with the gospel proper. I told you, you have to concentrate. A lot going on. Hopefully you're hanging in there. Back up now. The Bible teaches us that obedience of faith is a believer's good response to God's commandments. We are commanded to what? Love. Obedience of faith is a believer's good response to God's commandments. And when we look at this dynamic from 50,000 feet, way up high, big picture, when we look at it from a big picture perspective, the way, even in the, you know, getting closer to God's viewpoint on things, seeing the whole parade, not just what is your life today, but upping your game and looking at everything and saying, thinking about things like God is love, right? I want to abide in the sphere of love. Therefore, I keep his commandments. Those two things are the same. They're in the same place. It's God's realm. So when we look at this dynamic from 50,000 feet, we are able to see God's plan for sanctification for mankind. Paul wrote about this as a reason to rejoice. Go to Philippians 4, verse 4. Philippians 4, verse 4. So what do we see? Big picture. God says, drink from the well. Believe in the gospel truth. Otherwise, you're going to thirst forever in the lake of fire. And for we believers who are already saved, if we reject the water from the word, we suffer as well. Philippians 4.4 4. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And that reminds me of this week's blog, which is titled, Giving Thanks on Thanksgiving. Nice little blog, short and sweet. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If you haven't read that, please read it. There's not going to be one next week, so there you go. There's your reprieve, lazy. <laughs> Giving thanks on Thanksgiving. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And check this out. When you have that attitude in you, when you drink from the Word of God, you just drank it in just now. Did it seep in? Did it quench your thirst? Good. Now look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But what if you go, I'm too busy thinking about this afternoon. So, you know, you're like the idiot goes, here's your glass of water, right? Don't ask me to do it. I have a glass of water, but I'm not going to do it. You know, like in the, remember like the Three Stooges, right? Diane, it's only you and I, apparently. Right? That's the same thing. If you don't take the drink, which implies humility, concentration, commitment, right? You don't just get to show up as a passive learner. This isn't high school. I'm not some teacher that's begging you for, to, for you to get an A. That's between you and the Lord. If you want to be blessed out, if you want to be nourished, if you want your thirst quenched for the things that really matter in life, then drink. And guess what? Verse 7. When you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Furthermore, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure. In other words, he's like, you can't think about what to think about? Okay, I'm going to help you. Right? I'm going to help you with a big, your your glass is going to get taller and taller and taller. I'm going to help you. I'm going to fill that glass up. I'm going to tell you what to think about. Okay? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Seriously, people, what are you going to think about? Fantasy football? Seriously, what are you thinking about right now? Some of you, I can tell in the looks, I'm not going to look at anybody. But some of you, all class, this is, no, I'm not kidding you. This is some of you, all class. And once in a while, you go like this. Then you look like a... You know who you are. It's unbelievable. I'm like, where the heck is this person right now? What are they dwelling on? Is it what's being taught from the pulpit? Uh, Apparently not. Unless they're in such deep thought, and that's how they do it, and they freaked out every teacher they've ever had in their life. (laughs) If that's your game face, all right. Sorry, I I misjudged you. But I'm going to go on a limb and say there are other days when you're not like that, so I know. I'm just saying, just throw it out there. Dwell on these things, okay? (laughs) What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what does it say there? Practice. Remember applied faith? Drink. Drink. It started at salvation. Drink. Have your thirst quenched. Drink. Tip it back, baby. 
not a brew. Tip it back. The water from the Word. That's dissipation. The water from the Word. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Does that not sound like the most magnificent promise you've ever heard? Practice these things. Just, I'm, I just laid it out for you. Do this, and you get peace that surpasses all human comprehension. It's so powerful and so perfect and so pure that it protects you like a shield. Some of you are thinking Ephesians 6 right now, right? Shield of faith. Like a shield. Obedience builds a shield around you. Practice obedience of faith. Practice these things. Keep your mind on the things above, Colossians 3. Keep your mind where it's supposed to be. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ, and you will have peace. And by the way, what a gift it is. Go out and share it. Go share it with someone. One-on-one, in the dark of night. Jesus did. Obedience of faith, that phrase that keeps coming up for the past couple of weeks now, it means practicing. Obedience means practice. Obedience of faith is what Paul's writing about here. Practice these things. That's what obedience of faith is. In Philippians 4.8, he says, dwell on these things. So he gives you a layup even. I'm going to remind you of all the good things you have to dwell on. But here, up here on the board, practice these things. The word practice is from proso in the Greek. It means to commit to habit. You see the difference? It means to commit to habit, to perform to be in any condition, in other words. No matter what, high, low, circumstance here, circumstance there, doesn't matter. Winning, losing, failing, trying to weld without a mask, whatever. Can't see for a little bit? Cool. Learn from your mistakes. Press on. Practice these things. Get back to it. Drink from the Word. Make sense? Commitment. We haven't had that word in a while. Commitment. Commit to habit, to perform, to be in any condition. A la James 1, 22 to 25. Don't just talk the talk, but rather walk the walk. Galatians 5. Be a doer, James 1, right? Walk by the Spirit, James, uh, Galatians 5. That's the thing. Don't just be a, don't be a gum flapper. Because you're hurting yourself. The most honest of goodness, this is the goodness, and I'm 50 now, so I've seen a lot of people. The most miserable people many times, not bar none, are the biggest gum flappers. I think people think if they make noise and, and they, they say all the right things, that they can even convince themselves that it's true. Do you know what I'm saying? They just talk a big game. And just by hearing themselves, they deceive themselves. They just go, and it's like, dude, stop, shut up. Just shut your mouth, right? How about shut your mouth for a moment and walk? How about that? Zip this thing up and start walking for your own good. Practice these things. Walk the walk. That's what the Bible says. 
That's how you get your thirst quenched. This requires faith, of course, and is manifest in obedience. This kind of commitment is described in the Bible then as obedience of faith. Commit to habit, obedience of faith. Practice these things. Do you see it? That's all he's saying. Just different words, different circumstances, different language maybe. Same idea. Uh, you read the Word of God, you take it in, you obey. That's it. Is this difficult, folks? No. We teach this stuff in the prep school. It's not difficult. This kind of commitment is described in the Bible as obedience of faith, something that brought Jesus Christ himself maximum fruit while on earth. Obedience of faith brought Jesus Christ maximum fruit while on earth. All of which are described. Go to Galatians 5.22. We haven't seen this in a while. Galatians 5.22. Some of you long for what we're about to read. Right? Some of you long for it. Some of you are looking for love in all the wrong places. You're practicing what the world preaches, not what Jesus preached. And when you do that, you don't get Galatians 5, 22 and 23, because this describes the sphere of God. When you practice what the world preaches, you just ejected yourself from the sphere of God, experientially speaking. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Who doesn't want love here? Who doesn't want to love and be loved? Who doesn't want to be in the sphere of love, which is God, because God is love? Who doesn't want to experience that? Who doesn't want to be right there all the time? Then why, pray tell, are you disobedient to faith? Why are you not drinking in the truth? Why are you not walking by means of the Spirit? Only you can say, but what I can teach you from the Word of God dogmatically is this. I don't even have to teach. All I do is reading this with you. The fruit of the Spirit, you know, the stuff that's in the sphere of God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see him? Nine beautiful things listed. Not the only things, but nine beautiful things for you to dwell on. You could probably add that to Paul's little discourse dwell on these things. How about you go home and dwell on these things? Who doesn't want these things in their life? Really? Any questions? This isn't, none of this is confusing. The only reason any of us are confused is that we don't have clarity yet. That might be the issue. And for that, we, each of us have to give each other space. That's why we don't judge each other. Some of you are still sort of stuck. Some of you are stuck in some areas and not others. Some of you are older, some of you are younger in the faith. It's all good. It's not condemnation here. It's just truth. But the only way you're ever sanctified is that you're obedient to faith. You can't just reach across, like I taught last Sunday, I think, you know, reach in the sphere of God and go, well, I'm a little shy on joy right now. I have my own little love life here on the side with someone from the world who's ungodly. I'm a little shy on joy, though. 
So I'm going to reach in the sphere of God, as if you could do this. I'm going to reach in the, the sphere of God and pull out joy and go, yay! And all it really is, is a joy from this sphere over here. Another counterfeit. Hmm. None of it's confusing. The only reason any of us are confused is that we don't have clarity yet. Or we refused it. As last week's blog highlighted, lies produce the opposite of advertised results. Lies produce the opposite of advertised results. The crux of that blog was that a lot of people live lives of confusion, insecurity, etc. because they are living in lies, by choice nonetheless. We might describe those activities as drinking from a different wellspring. A source that springs up to death. <laughs> Jesus said, drink from this well. You'll never thirst. You'll have life. What about a counterfeit? What about, the, what about the well that the Pharisees or some religions around here, or even you in your own little concocted religion, have set up on the side? It looks a little bit like the well that Jesus talked about, but it's not the real thing. What does that produce? Death. Because anything that's separate from God is by definition, theological definition, spiritual death. That's what it means. Spiritual death means to be separated from God. That's why we call the lake of fire the second death. That sentence, boom, you are eternally separated from me. That's death. You understand? There are different wells. If you drink from the wrong well, it springs up not to eternal life, but to death. Reminds me of Paul's profound statement up here on the board. It's to, and the, the truth of the matter is that some of you I'm talking, I'm convinced of it, are just confused. Maybe you've been taught bad doctrine in the past. I don't know. You're just confused. Maybe you, you haven't heard it. Maybe in your own weakness, every time it's being taught, you go like this, blah, 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 right? Because you don't like it. You don't like actually what's being taught, so you kind of tune it out. Romans 6, 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Isn't that the greatest question? It's like so obvious. It's like, what are we doing? Why would we live in something that we're dead to? Why would we, by choice, give something dead to us power over us? We're not in the sovereign domain of sin anymore. We've been delivered from that. Why would we ever go back there by choice? Why would we ever drink from a well that's polluted? Right? You look that you pull up the thing and it's like a it's polluted like sewer water. You gonna drink that? Right? And you got pure, perfect water here to drink as much as you want. Why in the world would you go to the polluted water? Some of you will do it within ten minutes of leaving this building. The first thing you do is like whoosh, right? That's the bucket going down. Like whoosh, it goes and you drink it down. And you're like, oh, I feel sick. Gee, I wonder why. Why do you feel sick? Uh, I don't know. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's the greatest question for every believer. Paul was addressing the topic of being confused about life as a believer, something Jesus never experienced. So I guess I've got to pick a spot to close and just reflect a little bit. 
just sit back for a moment. We'll reflect. Is it fair to say that most people in this world have an identity crisis going on? Is that fair? I think so. I think most kids, I'm so happy that I'm not a kid. Honest to goodness. I'm so happy I'm not a kid in this world. Kids nowadays don't have any sense of self anymore. Why? Because the morons with the loudest voice nowadays are telling kids that reality is whatever you want it to be. That's whatever you want it to be. There's no more truth in this world. There's nothing that you can shore your self-esteem to. There's nothing that's absolute. It's whatever you want. That's the lie that we're telling kids. Want to be a woman even though God made you a man? You have every right. That's the message. And don't think, I, does anybody know if it's, is it all the way down to elementary school yet? Where parents are, yeah, parents are, are, are encouraging their kids to get transgendered. What? That's in elementary schools now. And in, in the, in the administration embraces it. And if they don't embrace it, they're mandated by law to embrace it. That kind of a stuff is going on. Want to be a woman, even though you're a man? You have every right. Want to act on lust patterns in the soul regarding homosexuality? Go for it. We'll celebrate you. We'll call you a hero. But coming out, I came out when I was younger as a heterosexual. No one ever celebrated me. Right? So I find myself passing my time away welding in the garage. I'm saddened. No one celebrates my heterosexuality. Right? Be whoever you decide to be. And since there's no God, to hell with the conservative voices. In fact, they are now your enemies. This is why your parents, or you parents out there, need to keep a very close eye on what the school systems are telling your kids. It's one of the reasons I'm so grateful that, well, I call him Little Shawnee, but the Little Shawnee's at Usafa, where there's a huge Orthodox Christian population there. A lot of Christians there, still Orthodox, right? But you know how rare that is in college now? College is, is like a breeding ground for, any, for the anti-Christians of the world. This country specializes in perverting the truth, which does nothing less than confuse our kids. Without biblical truth, there is no peace. Do you see it? What did Paul say when he said, dwell on these things? Was he not talking about biblical truth? Yeah. What if he says, dwell on these things, and then, is, then you say, well, what are you asking me to dwell on? Whatever you want. And I'm going to find peace just because I'm satisfying the, the, the lust of the flesh to do things my way? That's what you're saying? Yes. Dwell on whatever. Just dwell. Dwell on whatever you want, and you'll be at peace because you'll be satisfying what you want. Doesn't that just sound so great? Doesn't that sound so enticing to a young kid? Hey, here's a bucket of Tootsie Rolls. Eat as many as you want. Kids are like, this is the best. What do they do? No boundaries. God set up boundaries for a reason. He set up absolutes. We call it the truth. It's in the Word of God. 
Obedience of faith means to abide in that truth. And that truth will set you free. That's the big lie. Give me one second here. I just, gotta, I just want to close this thought out. 1 Corinthians 14.33, part A. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What we see out there is confusion, and therefore there's no peace. If he has the market cornered on peace, then it's no confusion, you get peace. Confusion, you don't get peace. Are school-age kids the only ones confused? Not at all. Why might any of us lack clarity? Maybe because we refuse to do as Jesus did, study the Word of God, read our Bibles, abide in truth, and as a result, be sanctified with it. Maybe that's the reason. We are promised that when we obey, the Lord removes the veil over our eyes. Go to 2 Corinthians 3.16, and I'll close. 2 Corinthians 3.16. We are made a promise that if we obey His commands, starting with salvation proper, but also salvation slash deliverance as believers, the veil will be removed. We get to drink from the wellspring that leads to life. And we'll never thirst. 2 Corinthians 3.16 But when one turns to the Lord, in other words, drinks from the well, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Freedom. And we all with unveiled face, talking about believers now, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, sanctified, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, let this be encouraging, my friends, as we close. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Please don't lose heart. We're all going to walk out of here. And we all laughed at each other because within 10 minutes, some of us are going to be right on our phones back in the, in the sewer pipe. It's funny, but it's not funny. It happens. But don't lose heart. It just means you're weak. We're all weak. We're going to do stupid crap today. Right? It doesn't give you a license to sin. What did Paul say? How do we live in sin if we've been delivered from it? How do we do that? There's no license to do that thing. But at least understand that God knows that we're all going to fail. But a righteous man fails seven times. How many times do you get up? Seven times. Don't lose heart. Amen? Don't lose heart. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the water that leads to life. Thank you for always making it available to us. Thank you for giving us the word that even washes over us, Father, for it is the truth that sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned this morning back to our homes and then out to a world that's just decaying. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.